0: I want to thank the church again for your patience today. Uh, it is assuredly a marathon on my part to, to preach this this frequently this morning, but uh, it does mean a lot that you would all uh, grant us that liberty to be home and, and get back to mama and make sure that the baby's doing good. Uh, open up your Bibles to the New Testament as we go into the Lord's uh, ministry here again. We now begin part six, so there's a little bit of an introduction to, to this uh, to this portion. If you want to, depending on the, the gospel account you prefer, uh, we'll be in Mark 10, Matthew 19, and John 7. Uh, and we'll get into a little bit of Luke here in a moment as well. This is the latter Judean ministry, what we're beginning here in part 6. It's believed to be around 29 AD. Uh, and this period of time spans about three months. Uh, if you if you collect these outlines, you see that I put this at the top every time we start a part. But I like to say it out loud uh, just so you can kind of time-wise see where everything is falling into place. Uh, the Lord here is on His way to Jerusalem, and He's departing from... Galilee and as I'd mentioned last Sunday, if we continue our afternoon studies as scheduled and knowing that you know when we have the spring meeting we won't have one then and I'll be traveling no doubt a few times throughout the year, we should begin what most refer to as passion week or that final week uh, of the Lord's ministry before the crucifixion uh, by the end of this year. So do pray for this study. Uh, it has been a long study, and again, I appreciate your patience. Um, I've been working on it for about two more years than, than you've been hearing it, uh, but it, I, I think it's a worthwhile study for us to see this chronologically, to see how these uh, these miracles and these sermons fall into, uh, into place chronologically. So what we have here in the beginning in Mark 10, 1... Matthew nineteen one through 2, and John chapter 7, verse 10, is really just kind of setting up that he's he's moving forward. If you recall, they were approaching a feast. Uh, we'll get into that in a moment. And he was dealing with his actual siblings, his half-siblings, uh, last Sunday afternoon. Mark ten one says, And he arose from thence, and cometh into the coast of Judea, by the farther side of the Jordan. And the people resort, or come together, or assemble, according to Strong's, Unto him again. And as he was wont or custom to do, he taught them again. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 2, an account of this same event says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee, came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. John 7, verse 10 says, But when his brethren were gone up, again, these are his half siblings, this use of brethren, Then went he also up into the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Now in Matthew and Mark's account, and I just have a few notes on these verses and then we'll get to the next part of this. Uh, in Matthew and Mark's account, we have some phrasing that we need to address here first and foremost. Mark writes uh, that the Lord cometh into the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan. Matthew writes he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. Now, as you can see from the maps all around me, uh, well maybe those in the front, I don't know if those in the back can see it. Judea did not extend beyond the Jordan. We can assume that these writers are indicating here, rather, that Jesus had finished his teachings in Galilee and departed from that province for a ministry in the regions of Judea and in those uh, beyond Jordan. Ordinarily, we would read that uh, in going from Galilee to Judea, Jesus would follow the route usually taken by the other Jews. Although he did not share the prejudices of his fellow Jews against the Samaritans, because again, if you're looking at the map, uh, he'd have to go through Samaria to to get to where he's going. He does not hesitate to take this shorter route through Samaria whenever the situation made such a course advisable. Uh, Likely the reason for doing so on this occasion was that the feast had already begun before he departed from Galilee, and he'd already told us in the previous lesson Uh, that we discussed last Sunday, that his intention wasn't to be there for the beginning of this feast. The next section that follows this is Luke 9, verses 51 through 56. And this is where we see the Lord rejected by those same Samaritans. Uh, Once again, illustrating that there is a purpose to everything, and there's a reason the Lord took this route. So we'll begin by reading there in Luke 9, verses 51 through 56, where it says, And it came to pass... When the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are up. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. And we don't know the name of the village that would not receive the Lord here or his company. But action, the action of its inhabitants is evidenced by their prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans. And, and we can see from James and John that that prejudice was fairly mutual. What were they offended by? Uh, we already know the Lord had come through this way once before. What are they offended by here? Uh, that he had intention of going to Jerusalem. Samaritans wouldn't have been welcome to go to Jerusalem. They wouldn't have been a part of this, uh, the feast experience there in Jerusalem. And we should note that the Lord's response was in full accord, not only with his teachings from non-resistance, but also with the instructions that he had given the disciples to flee when persecuted in one city to the next. And we see that there in Matthew 10, verses 5 through 16. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye, uh, enter ye not. Now this... Uh, now. I don't bring this up because he says that about the Samaritans. At that time they weren't he didn't have for them to go under the Samaritans, but listen to what comes next. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as ye go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. Provide neither gold, nor silver, nor brass in your purses, nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. And into whatsoever city or town ye enter, it, uh, that ye shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till ye go thence. And when ye come into an house, salute it, and if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it not be worthy, this is the part that we see uh, there is a great consistency in. If it not be worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for for that city. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents. And harmless as doves. There's a couple things if you if you mark your Bibles, I'd like for you to mark and maybe even bracket together. Freely ye have received, freely give. This is the command that the Lord gives to these twelve. Now, these twelve, to to our knowledge, biblically, have never cast out devils, raised the dead, cleansed lepers, or healed the sick before. And we don't really have an example where the Lord has done those specific things for these twelve. So this isn't one of those, well, I've done this specific thing for you, so you can do that specific thing for someone else. What has the Lord given them? He's given himself unto these twelve. They have the ability to do this because they freely received of him who is able to do this. Not only able in power, but that other meaning of the word power that we see so often in the New Testament, authority. The Lord is granting them by word the authority. He is the Word, capital W. He is the authority, capital A. And he is the power, and you know how to, what a capital P looks like. I won't do that one with my fingers as well. He's granting them this. And he says, as ye have been freely given, freely give. As you have not given me anything to receive this They are not required to give you anything to receive what I'm sending you out to do. Now connect that with what you see in the last verse that we read. I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Because I think sometimes as as modern day Christians, we say, well, this would have been good then. But folks got... AR 15s and, and, uh, and mean words and humiliate me on social media now. So, you know, the Lord's word here wouldn't be as accurate now for me because it's more devastating. No. What did wolves do to sheep in the Lord's time? They'd have torn them to shreds and devoured them. What do wolves still do to sheep now? This is the picture Christ gave them. So we have to use it. What would a wolf do with a sheep now? Tear it to shreds and devour it. He's sending them forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. He's sending you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. We find no way out of freely giving then of what we have freely received, do we? He calls for them because they are sheep in the midst of wolves, that's the therefore, to be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And what happens every time a Christian attempts to be a little more harmful than a dove? Christianity gets smacked. The testimony, the witness, the ability to stand feels diminished. Why? Go back to the Sermon on the Mount. The commandment that the Lord gave for us to be harmless as doves, to, if you're smited on one cheek, offer up the other. If your cloak is taken, give the scarf, and so on and so on and so on and so on. Freely give as ye have freely received. And so we see here that though the Samaritans are rejecting him because his face is as one is going unto Jerusalem, the Lord's not about to call fire down upon them. And we see the prejudice of James and John and uh, their nickname, the Lord grants unto them the Boanerges, the Sons of Thunder, because the, the, the impact of them being two of the twelve, that's more than 10%. Two of the twelve that had been sent had been commissioned here in Matthew 10. And now they're suddenly, now's our chance. Can we Elijah them? Can we call down Fire. Oh, man, Lord, we've been waiting for this opportunity. Let's do it! Why? Had they forgotten the freely given part? Had they forgotten the harmless as doves part? I don't see doves calling down fire on too many folks. They'd forgotten their place. This is literally what the Lord says unto them. Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. In other words, that's not what you were freely given. Everything he commanded there uh, when he sent the 12 in Matthew 10 was of a healing. It pointed towards life. And what they're requesting to do here is death, judgment, wrath of God, exercised by the wrath and anger of men. This was a threefold lesson that they were being taught over multiple events that we've already seen uh, in, in the last four or five lessons. First, there was an emphasis on them learning to love one another in the church. And uh, we see this in Galatians 5 verses 22 through 26. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. So the first lesson was for them to learn to love one another in the church. Their second lesson was on learning to love those outside the fold. And I'll just give you a couple more examples as a reminder of that. Luke chapter 10. uh, It should be the next page or so from where you're currently at. Luke 10, verses 1 through 2. After these things the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. And also, might add, we should rejoice because what takes place there in Luke 10 is a promise. He sent them where he had already intended to go. He sent them beginning a work that he had intended to finish, the author and finisher of this great work. John chapter 3 verses 26 through 30 says, And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with Thee beyond Jordan to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, the Messiah, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. This love that's being shown outside the fold, again, we see through a lens of this is where Christ intended to go. Who John baptized were intended to be disciples of Christ, were they not? And this water baptism that, that uh, John the Baptist had performed, what he had received authority to do, is still going today. So it is still very important for us to understand that it wasn't just merely replaced by a Holy Spirit baptism. It is still the picture and the joining of unto a collective group of folks that believe unto the Lord Jesus Christ that, call, that were called together, as we've been seeing in Jude, sanctified, preserved, and what we're about to see next Sunday, Lord willing, called together. This is all the work of the Lord. And he intends again, as we've been seeing here, to come unto them once more. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, Paul writes, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Now we taught through Philippians a few months back, so this may just be a reminder for some of you, but he's in prison at this time as he's writing back unto them, and he's saying that their great concern for him is appreciated But what has happened through this affliction, as some may remember from Wednesday, the afflicted gate, as we were talking about, through this affliction has come the furtherance of the gospel. He says, So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some... Also of good will, the one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defence of the gospel. What then, Paul says, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. This that we have in our text today is the third part of this threefold lesson. They had to learn to love their enemies. I can't pretend to know how, we, how we're doing at that. But what we have before us is this lesson for the church. This lesson first delivered by Christ Jesus to the church. And if they were worthy of this lesson, beloved, so were we. They had to learn to love their enemies. The Samaritans and Jews had been feuding for centuries, but Jesus would not participate in the fight. We know this from John 4, and the Lord's pursuit of the woman at the well. Consider now John chapter 8, verses 41 through 49, which says, Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your Father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Again, speaking to that authority. Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word, Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He aboded not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it, as we proved this morning. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinces me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my Father, and ye do dishonor me. And again, remember the good Samaritan story. The reason that we read this entire piece from John 8 is because as he's illustrating for them who their daddy is, as we might say today, they literally vomit out that confession themselves as they call him a Samaritan. As their flesh is trying to make sense of this sinless one that stands before them, all they can do is lash out. (laughs) Do you have a devil? Are you a Samaritan, they say? I wonder if the Lord didn't just shake his head, maybe even turn to to his disciples and say, they have their reward. They've illustrated their very nature. They've illustrated their commander-in-chief. They confess that which they believe. They believe me to be a Samaritan. They need to believe me to be the Son of God. They need to believe me to be their Savior. But they believe me to be their enemy. They confess it. This illustrates what he said back in John 3, does it not? I condemn thee not. You have you don't believe, he says. Everybody knows John 3:16, but turn over there, there's more. Act now. John 3 God sent, uh, John 3:17. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Saved from what they're already suffering under. Verse 18, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. These he's addressing here in John 10, don't believe him to be God. John 8, sorry. They believe him to be a Samaritan or something of a devil. In verse 19, this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. What we read in 1 John earlier is that there is no darkness in God. Verse 20, for everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest That they are wrought in God. So, what we now see is that evil confesses of evil. Evil confesses who their daddy is. And good confesses of good. Good confesses who their daddy is. If we are born again, if we are of this good, we must be diligent to confess who our daddy is. Those who are perishing, those who are lost, those who are struggling. They will not see this light any other way. We call John the apostle of love, but Jesus calls him and his brother the sons of thunder, Mark 3.17, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James. Zebedee is their family name, this is their father, but their surname is the Boenerges. The name seems to denote fiery and destructive zeal that may be likened to a thunderstorm, according to Strong's. Hmm. Perhaps their seeing Elijah on the mountain uh, a few lessons back in that transfiguration incited them to want to call down fire from heaven. Maybe they felt they had access to these three, the Lord and, and those that he conferred with. But in the time of Elisha, the prophet was involved in doing this very thing, but his circumstances were very different. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18, and I'm going to start when I get there for time's sake. 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 17. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elisha that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And it's almost as though he calls him a Samaritan or someone with a devil. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. And thou hast followed Balaam. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel and the prophet of Baal four hundred and fifty and the prophets of the grove four hundred, which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto the Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. And if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, Not a word. And the people typically don't. The people typically don't. We prefer haltness. We prefer haltness as though it's a place of safety. But if you are at at some strait between nations, you're an easy target. Everywhere else is water. You are protected by no nation. You are exposed to both. How much longer halt you between two decisions? Verse 22, Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I, only remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire under, and I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. These same that remained silent when they were accused of halting, which I'm coming back to in a moment, suddenly arise to speak in confirmation of a challenge. We see here then they weren't halt, were they? They weren't in between two decisions. They were all the way towards one decision. They welcomed the challenge. It is well spoken. But when accused of being in favor of something other than the Lord, they remain silent. What is it about our flesh that doesn't allow us to answer honestly? Might it lead to repentance? Verse 25 And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many, and call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning and even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awaked. I'm sorry, I love that verse. Verse 28, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets, till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, and there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. See, they're prepared now. Their gods have been identified and revealed as dead, mute, not living, or at the very least unwilling. He says, come near, they come near. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down and he, it's described there as him physically repairing the altar, but he's, he's spiritually repairing that altar. You understand everything we've read so far. He is repairing the altar in their hearts. He's repairing the place where God should be. This is very similar to the Lord overturning the money changers, very similar to the high priest taking out the cold, maybe damp ashes and rekindling the fire. He's repairing the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name, which we're going to see probably this Wednesday, uh, or very soon at least. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would uh, contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bullock in pieces, and laid him on the wood. And now all of this so far has been normal. Then he says, Fill four barrels with water. And pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. Understand that pronoun they. It still means today what it meant then. They did this. And the water ran around the altar. And he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and of Israel. Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. I want you to circle verse 30 and verse 37. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice. You know, these things are sopping wet. Burnt sacrifice consumed. The wood consumed. The stones consumed. You ever try to burn a stone? And the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal. Let none of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Don't forsake, verse 40, all you lovers of this God of love. The wrath of God is not something to be trifled with. He didn't tell Elijah to instruct the Israelites to take the prophets of Baal and just give them a good old bear hug, squeeze them till they agree, tickle them until they agree with you, slay them. Why? Because they were in the Lord's seat. Because they caused for you to allow the altar of God to be crumbled, to be destroyed, to be abandoned, to be dead as the idols you worshipped. Slay them was the instruction of God. And it still is. During the time of the Lord's ministry, grace was being taught. During the Lord's sermon on the mount, back in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, the Lord said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. The focus, even as it was there with those Elijah was addressing, was on the heart of God's elect. Listen again. Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48. And we're closing, I promise. I know you're hungry. Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him, twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy, but I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. In other words, you have no enemies. You have only neighbors. If you're Christian, you have no enemies. You're not to have resentment. That threefold cord of love that we talked about a few weeks ago. You are to forgive because you've been freely given. Therefore, freely give. Ye may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. That's a weighty command. And and really... Uh, An F ought to be thrown in there somewhere because you're not going to be perfect unless you're continuing to repent. Unless you repent you will never find perfection. And you won't find sinless perfection in this life. But the closest you're ever going to find is on your knees. Listen one last time. Romans 12 verses 9 through 21. This is our last reference. Romans 12 verses 9 through 21. Let love be without dissimulation. This means... Unfeigned. This means let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor or put to death that which is evil. Cleave or cling to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothfulness in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Young men, if you're thinking about teaching for the first time, you take that one verse and you lay out every one of those things for us and that'd be a great and mighty lesson that we need desperately today. Then he says, bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Why would the writer feel necessary after saying bless them that persecute you to remind you to bless and curse not? Because this writer had flesh, and he knew exactly what we'd be like, because he was also the same. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. Weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men." Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. If you have an anger problem, you ought to write that verse down somewhere where you're going to see it regularly. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, or your neighbor hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. That might sound like a bad thing to you. Uh, It wasn't a bad thing to Isaiah. Go look at Isaiah 6. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. A greater power, in answer to what James and John had requested. A greater power was now with man, and his instruction was to love thy neighbor as thyself. Not to go and call down fire anymore. Grace had entered into the land, Grace had entered into the realm. a greater than Jonah was here. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, yeah, I want to ask, do you know him as your savior, but do you know him? Even those who are saved, you got to answer that. Do you know him? Do you know all that he portrays, all that he pictures, all that he fulfills? and on all we should depend? I urge you this day, if you don't know him, give heavy and deep consideration to that which was preached this day and repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Can we close with a song, please?